Good morning, church. I'm thankful that you're here today. I want to just um, reiterate what Mark said and encourage you, if you even have the slightest bit of interest uh, in learning more about what that Mexico mission trip opportunity is going to involve, I encourage you to, <clears throat> to hang around after class and uh, to just listen uh, to the details about that and learn some more about that opportunity and maybe the ways that you can participate in that, your family might participate in that. I also want to, uh, he made a comment, Mark made a, one comment about our potluck, but I want to I highlight that for just a minute. Um, if that's the first that you heard that we were having a potluck after church today, um, ch- I want you to know that you're, we want you to still stay, uh, and we, you, can, you can go and grab something at Brookshire's or some other restaurant and bring it, or you can just come and join us, it doesn't matter. Uh, however much food is there is how much we'll have. And so we want you to be there. Uh, as I mentioned last week, uh, this is the first time we've done a potluck uh, since 2020 and COVID and all the things that happened over the last couple of years. And so uh, we really want you to come and be a part of that, enjoy some fellowship with each other and uh, as the body of Christ today. So hope you'll make plans to stay and be a part of that, uh, regardless of if you came prepared to do to stay for that or not. So uh, it'll be a good good thing. I want to ask if you would just to bow with me again as we uh, begin our time in God's Word. <clears throat> Father, we come this morning thankful uh, for <clears throat> a new day and for the promise that your mercy is new each day. And as we uh, come to, you, to your Word this morning, God, we approach it with humility, asking that you will uh, use the words that we look at in Scripture today to Give us insight and encouragement about how we might walk more humbly with you. We pray, Father, that today that you'll give us ears to hear and eyes to see all that you want us to hear and see so that we might live in the way that you want us to live. We pray in the name of our brother and our Savior, Jesus, and the church said, Amen. So over the last several weeks, we've been looking at really one verse in the Bible and and kind of trying to understand the depth and the significance of this one verse. The verse comes from the prophet Micah in Micah 6, chapter 8, where the prophet Micah, speaking to the people of Israel, says these words. He says, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? An important question. And the answer is to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. To act justly, to do justice, to love mercy and to walk humbly, to walk in humility. And these are the things that God wants not only for Israel but God wants for each and every one of us. And so the last two weeks prior to today we talked about the phrase act justly and, and, and then we talked about what it means to love mercy last week. And today I want to spend our time in this last phrase, walking humbly. And next week we'll sort of wrap up this series. The reality is that being humble uh, doesn't come easy in the world that we live in. Humility is hard, you might say. And as I was thinking about this, as it relates to many, many things in our world, but one of the things that I, that I specifically was thinking about was the, the fact that the, the idea of coming in second place. Like, do you know that it's been scientifically proven that people hate second place? No one wants to be second place. 
You have never seen at any event one of those foam fingers with two fingers sticking up, right? Why? Because second place is not the desirable place to be. It's a humbling place to be. There was a, a saying years ago that some of you, that I first heard years ago, some of you may remember that second place is actually the first loser, right? And that's sort of the way that we treat that idea of being second place. And this research that I'm referring to where it's been scientifically proven that people don't like second place happened about 10 years ago where some psychologists at Cornell University did some research on Olympians, Olympians specifically that had won medals over the years. And the research was later published in an article that was titled, Why Winning Bronze Beats Winning Silver. And in the article, they share this research where they'd looked at Olympians that had won silver medals. They interviewed these Olympians, but they also watched video footage and analyzed their reactions right after the event had taken place. And what they found in their research was that when the medal winners discovered their medal position at the end of the event, right at the end of the event, they found that the bronze medalists were consistently and significantly happier than the silver medalists. And this was both after competing, but even after receiving their actual medal up on the podium. Why? What would be the reason for this? Well, it has to do with what psychologists call counterfactual thinking. Counterfactual thinking explains the difference between how a bronze and a silver medalist think about the results that have just taken place in their events and the medals that they received. For example, silver medalists, the research shows, were more likely to use phrases like, I almost, as in, I almost got gold which concentrates, right, on what they missed out on instead of what they actually have. While bronze medalists tended to express gratitude for placing it all because the other option was that they got fourth place, and that certainly wasn't desirable. The alternative of getting no medal was worse than the alternative of getting third place and not even having a chance to stand on the podium at all. And over and over and over in the research, they found that silver medal winners live with this sort of wound I was almost number one. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Like in our world, first place is so significant. Being the best is so important. It's viewed as the ultimate goal. Second place is never thought of as a place to be, a desirable place to be. And so here are these athletes who have achieved the highest place in their sport, whatever sport that might be. They've accomplished so much. They've worked so hard to get to that ultimate moment where they're competing in the Olympic Games. And yet often, if they don't get first place, they end up feeling like they never quite measured up. They've been humbled on the highest of stages. Micah's world is not actually all that different from our world. This is why he would say to the people that walking humbly with God is one of the things that is desired, that is required of us. Our world puts focus on self, and our world, like Micah's, does not honor humility, but sees it as a sign of weakness. And Micah knows this as he's speaking to the people. And it's into this world where he speaks and he says, remember, remember what God requires of you. 
I know it's easy, he says, to be more influenced by the world than by God, which is why it's important to remember what God requires of you, to act justly, to act with righteousness, to love mercy, and to walk with humility. And this, this desire to be on top is not, didn't start with us, it didn't start with people in Micah's day, it actually started from the very beginning. In the book of Genesis, near the beginning of the story, we meet two brothers, twins, Jacob and Esau. And the story tells us in Genesis chapter 25 that even in their mother's womb, these two brothers are jostling and fighting to be born first. Esau would be born first, but as the story goes, his younger brother Jacob was born grabbing the heel of his brother Esau, which is what Jacob's name means, right? Grabber or grasper. And this is the way that Jacob's life goes for a while. Grasping and grabbing and climbing his way or trying to climb his way into first place. Esau was first and Jacob was always trying to climb out of second place. Because as the firstborn, Esau would have not only received the family inheritance, but also would have received the blessing of their father. And what starts at the beginning of the story in Genesis continues throughout the story of Scripture. So that when you get to the New Testament, we meet two other brothers. These two brothers' names are James and John. These two brothers are some of Jesus' very own disciples. They've been chosen by Jesus to be his innermost circle of followers. And Mark tells us that these two brothers, they're kind of like Jacob and Esau. They don't quite get it. And they ask Jesus a question, a question that reveals that they're not actually happy with second place. They're not actually happy with the silver medal. Listen to what Mark tells us, beginning in Mark chapter 10, verse 35. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask, which is just a hilarious question, a hilarious statement to even think. And then Jesus even acknowledged, like I, I picture Jesus hearing their question and hearing the ridiculousness of it but just kind of going along with it and goes, what do you want me to do for you, he asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup that I drink or can you be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Essentially, Jesus is saying, can you go through what I'm about to go through? Can you live in the way that I'm going to live? And they say, we can. We're committed to you. They answered this, we can. And Jesus said to them, you, you're right. You're actually right about this. You, you will drink the, the cup that I drink, and you will be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or my left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the ten heard a bit about this, the other ten disciples, Mark tells us they were indignant with James and with John. I want to stop here for just a second. It's important to know that right before this story, if you go to Mark chapter 10 and you look right before this story, Mark tells us that Jesus has just told his disciples for a third time that he's going to die. And then right after this, in the very next chapter, in Mark chapter 11, Jesus is going to go into Jerusalem riding on a colt. His death is coming is what Mark is saying. 
He's told him he's going to die. The very next chapter, he's entering Jerusalem, which means within a week, he'll be hanging on a cross. His death is coming. But James and John and the disciples, they've heard all this talk about suffering and death and rising again. They're not exactly understanding what Jesus is talking about. It's like they think about it as a metaphor. It's like they think, well, maybe, we don't know exactly what Jesus means, but maybe he means something like, guys, it's going to get tough for a while. You need to be prepared. Things are going to get tough as my followers are going to be tough for a while. But we're going to come out on top in the end. We're going to come out number one in the end. They can't comprehend that Jesus would really be going to die. They're thinking about themselves. And so they come to Jesus with this question. And they preface it by saying, before we ask, we almost, it's almost like they know the ridiculousness of the question themselves, right? Because they're like, they preface it by saying, before we even ask you the question, we want you to do for us whatever we say, right? Like kids who come to their parents and say, but they don't, they want to ask you the thing they want to ask you. They want to know that they're going to get the answer yes before they ask. And when they've guaranteed that they can get the answer they want, then they'll ask the question. This is the way James and John treat this scenario. They're thinking about themselves and securing their spots in this kingdom that they think is going to be dominating the world sometime very soon. And Mark says that the other disciples, these other ten disciples, are indignant. Indignant is not a word that I ever use, and I don't think that any, many of us use very often. But in that word in its original language means to like feel violently irritated about something, right? In other words, the disciples are ticked off. They're mad. They're upset. They're frustrated with these guys. They're like, what in the world? And you could look at that a couple of different ways. On one hand, you could look at it like, you guys are silly. You're ridiculous. Why would you even be asking this question? I actually think that they're indignant because they didn't ask the question first. And they're like, why didn't we think about that? That's a good idea. We should have tried to secure our places in the kingdom. And so Jesus calls them all together, understanding again that they don't quite understand what he's trying to say. And he says this in verse 42. He calls them all together and he says, You know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. People in the world, he's saying, who are in charge, lord it over the people who are not in charge. And the high officials exercise authority over all those who they have authority over. But it's not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, guys, you, you don't understand. Your thinking is being too influenced by the world and the kingdoms of the world. In those kingdoms, power is everything. Being first is the most important thing. Having the best seats in the kingdom and the most toys is what everybody else pursues, but not so with you. In other words, this is not how we're going to do things in the kingdom of God. Do you want to be great, Jesus says? Do you want to be great, Jesus asks us, really great? Okay, if so, he says, listen closely, because the way to be great is not what you expect. Whoever wants to be great must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be the slave of all. And, and I really think to really understand this statement, 
Like we have to know that in that world that Jesus is speaking these words into for the very first time, in that world, the Roman Empire organized its citizens like airlines organize their passengers. First class and everybody else, right? One ancient Roman historian once called the lower class the rabble because that's how they viewed that serving class. And when you know that about the way that Rome treated the citizens of their country, you begin to see that it would have been shocking for Jesus to suggest that this idea of humbling yourself to the status of a servant is what made somebody great because it wouldn't have made sense in that day. And in many ways, if the call of if the call to be a servant is not shocking to you, it actually reveals that you've been influenced by Jesus. So that might be encouraging to you. Because this is not an idea that existed in the world that Jesus was living in. And that day, those words would have sounded crazy. But Jesus didn't just say these words. He didn't just say, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. If you want to be first, you must be a slave of all. He lived it out. And on Jesus' last night on earth, he was so committed to teaching the disciples that he act, that this, this, of this practice that he acted it out to them as like a real-life parable, an object lesson. Like what Raleen would do with her, our first and second graders, right? She would, they would, Jesus, he's like, you guys are not getting it. So I'm going to show you physically with my body what, what this means. And so John records this powerful scene In John chapter 13, beginning in verse 3, this is what John says. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. Jesus understood that he he was God's son and that God had given him authority. He knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and would be returning to God. And so because he understands the seriousness of the situation and what's involved and how important it is that he begins passing these messages on to his disciples that they get it, he gets up from the meal, John says. He takes out his outer clothing and he wraps a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. A lot of us know this story. We're familiar with this story. The way I want you to think about this is that one of Jesus' last acts on earth was to wash feet. Washing feet in and of itself in that day was not abnormal. It was a normal part of ancient life. It was necessary, really, for hygiene. It was also an act of hospitality. If somebody came to your home and they'd been wearing, they were wearing sandals and they'd been out walking on the dusty roads all day, you would offer them water to wash their feet as they walked into your house so that what was ever, whatever was on their feet wouldn't get all over your floor. And it was also a religious cleansing ritual. But the act of washing feet was demeaning in that day. And really, if you've ever washed someone else's feet, you know, it's a humbling act in and of itself today still. Bible, Bible scholars have noted that in the ancient day, in ancient times, of all the writings that exist that we have record of, that people have found, there are no stories, zero stories, of a higher status person washing the feet of a lower status person. There are no stories, zero stories, of rabbis washing their disciples' feet, except this rabbi 
who said that he was the Savior of the world. And John Ortberg, in his commentary on this story, says, Jesus expressed an alternative view of greatness through his clothes. Removing his outer garment, he says, and wrapping a towel around himself is what a slave would do. If you came into somebody's house and they had a servant, the servant would do this act of washing your feet. Jesus, he says, wore the uniform of a slave. He didn't just call people to be servants. He was a servant. And what Jesus is saying through this physical display of feet washing is that authority in the kingdom of God looks radically different than the ideas that we often have about greatness and authority. We've allowed our culture, if we're honest, we've allowed our culture to shape our understanding of strength. But Jesus was changing the way that the world thought about all of those things. Changing the way that we understood strength. Changing the way we thought about humility. Because after he washes his feet, he says this, skipping ahead in verse 12. When he had finished washing their feet, he put his clothes on and returned to his place at the table. And he asks them. He, doesn't, he wants to make sure that they didn't miss anything. So he says, do you understand what I've done for you? And they're like, not really. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. It's that last part of that last sentence for me that gets it. I have done this as an example so that you'll do it too. Jesus was changing the way that the world thought about strength and making humility something to aspire to in the process. And what's even more amazing, right? This is an amazing moment. But what to me is even more amazing is that after Jesus dies and returns to the Father, not long after this scene plays out, a community of people would form that would call themselves Christians, Christians, little Christs, trying to be Jesus in the places where they lived. And Rome didn't know what to do with these Christians. Rome thought humility was weak, but this group of Christians who say, said that they followed Jesus, this group was actually doing what their teacher taught them to do. And before long... We read in the New Testament that they're gathering together, and they're gathering with people of every status, rich and poor, slave and free, men and women, all together. This is why Paul would speak to the churches, and he would say, when you enter into these places, these churches, all those things that are your status symbols outside of the church, leave them at the door, because when you come into church, they don't matter anymore. Out there, you might be number one, but in here, everybody's number one. A slave, picture this, a slave arrives in the first century, not welcomed in many places where they might go, but they arrive to church, probably at the house of a wealthy person, a big house where lots of people could gather. A slave gets invited and they, they come, they're curious about this teaching they've been hearing people talk about that seems to be changing people's lives everywhere they look, and so they're, they're interested, they're curious, and they show up. 
They show up to worship with other Christians in this home of this wealthy person, some person of influence that in their mind, in their world, they never would have the opportunity to associate with. And they're like, it's at whose house? Church is at whose house? I couldn't go there. Look at, look at me. Who, who, look who I am. And their friend says, no, I promise you, this is different. This community is different than anything you've ever experienced before. And so they get up the courage to go. And when they enter into the house, someone else, this person is a slave, someone else, maybe it's a free person, maybe it's a citizen, maybe even someone in the higher class, an aristocrat of the day, someone of influence in the society, imagine them greeting this slave as they arrive at church that first day, entering the home. Imagine this person wrapping a towel around their waist in the way of Jesus, kneeling down on the floor and washing the feet of this first-time guest, this slave. The only thing that had happened in that scenario is that this slave had crossed the threshold of the house and their status changed like that. Out there, they weren't welcomed as full citizens, but in here, something seemed different. Can you imagine why this would be so disruptive to society? Rome is not sure what to do because in there, these Christians are talking in ways that we don't like. It's no wonder that they wanted to kill Jesus. They thought killing Jesus would eliminate the problem, but it just multiplied this new problem that they have. A problem for Rome, not a problem for the church. The church wasn't following the social norms of the day. And what's interesting is when Paul is writing at one point in the New Testament to one of these groups of Christians, the church in Philippi, which interestingly enough is a Roman colony, was a Roman colony, he says these words in Philippians chapter 2. He says, do nothing. He's reminding them, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility... Consider and value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And he goes on, if you know this passage in Philippians 2, he goes on to say, you're doing this because of Jesus. You're doing this because of Jesus who, in humility, came and made himself obedient to death, even death on a cross. Paul says, remember Jesus. Live in, the view, in view of how he lived. Do nothing out of selfish. Don't do anything that mo- is mo- like your, your motivation isn't your own self. Your motivation is other people and valuing other people above yourself. He humbled himself in life and he humbled himself in death on the cross. In the Roman Empire, Paul, where Paul is writing these words to this church in Philippi, a Roman colony, what those Philippians would know and what Paul would know is that in the Roman Empire, someone might be humbled but by losing money or losing status, losing influence somehow, but no one deliberately humbled themselves like this until now. And so what we understand is that because of Jesus, what walking humbly means is living as a servant. Right, Micah, I think Micah understood this. And so this is one of the reasons he include, this is included when he's speaking to the people with doing justice, caring for things that God cares about, loving mercy and being a person of mercy and living with humility. It means living as a servant, living in the way of Jesus. 
So that now when we think about what Micah said in Micah 6, 8, we learn to do this walking humbly by watching Jesus Christ himself. The reality is if we're going to live like servants, if we're really going to take on this nature, we're really going to go all in, go for it, give ourselves to it, it's going to mean some things for you and for me. It's going to mean that we're committed to some things. Walking humbly, living as a servant will mean that we listen, I think, more and we talk less. Walking humbly will mean that we enter into relationships understanding that we don't have all the answers. Walking humbly will mean that we acknowledge our own brokenness and weakness, and maybe that happens first, actually. Walking humbly will mean that we approach people with grace and with love in the way of Jesus. Walking humbly will mean that we want, and what we want is secondary to what God wants for us. Walking humbly will mean that we value others above ourselves, looking at the needs of others as more important. Hear what Paul said, valuing others as more important than your own self and your own needs. What makes this so radical, church, is that we're choosing to do it. We hear it, and we hear the challenge of it, and we're like, that's hard. Nobody likes second place. And we choose it anyway. Because we understand that second place isn't the first loser. Second place is the greatest position that can be occupied in the kingdom of God. And that's why you, we understand that it's so countercultural to the way we live. Because nobody's ever going to choose second place. And Jesus says, second place is the best place. Because you're looking for ways to put people above yourself. We're fully a son and a daughter. But we see instead of our desires and our needs, our true life's purpose. Our true life's purpose is people and meeting the needs of other people. And so this, this influences how you think about your job, whatever job you do. It doesn't matter what job you do. Whatever job you do, and I've talked about this some in the past, whatever job you do, you need to understand that the real work you're doing is people. You might be, I don't know what you're selling or buying or teaching or whatever. The real work you're doing is people. It's always people. It's always the people that you're involved with. And you have, we have dozens and dozens of opportunities all the time to be putting, valuing people above ourselves, figuring out ways. And it can be tricky, certainly in the marketplace, in the business world, and it can be tricky in the educational world as you're the teacher or the administrator and you're trying to live in life with these students that you might teach. But the reality is this is the call that you've been given. Right? Whatever your job is, it's really about the people and figuring out ways to live as a servant among the people that God has put you with. And it doesn't, by the way, mean that sometimes, I, as I was thinking about this this week, living as a servant, and so you, you, somebody could say, well, Doug, I hear you saying that, but it's, it sounds like you're adding a lot more work to my plate, right? And it might require a little bit of work from us, but I want to also say that living as a servant doesn't mean you never say no to commitments. It doesn't mean that you never rest doesn't mean that you don't need to take a break or that you don't do anything for yourself. It's not, that's not what I'm saying. Those can be healthy spiritual rhythms as well. What it simply means is that you see the most meaningful thing that you can do with your life's energy as the thing you can do to meet the needs of somebody else. 
It means that you never stop serving. And I've said it before, we don't get to retire from the kingdom of God. Even if we retire from our life's work, it means that you might be fine not getting noticed. But you work hard for something and you don't get the recognition that other people get. And that's okay because your value has already been given to you by, by God. It means that you look for opportunities to alleviate the hurt and the pain and the suffering in the lives of other people that you encounter. And so here's my challenge this morning. I want to end with a challenge. I want you to give some thought to the question, how can I grow in humility? It's not a fun question to ask necessarily, and I realize that. But I actually want you to sit with that question. Even now, I want you to sit and to take a moment right now and reflect on that question. Maybe it doesn't take a long time to think about it. Maybe it's the first thing that comes to your mind in a relationship or interaction that you had with someone this last week where you're remembering a thing you said or a thing you did. Or maybe it's something that you know is coming down the road. Or maybe it's just something that's been stirring in your heart. Can you identify some barriers in your life that are keeping you from practicing humility? Of thinking that are enabling you to think more highly of yourself than you ought to. And my encouragement to to you would be to spend more time than I'm giving you right now to sit with that question. How can I grow in humility? And to ask the Holy Spirit to move you past any barriers that may exist. And the second thing I want to challenge you with, after you've given some thought to this question, how can I grow in humility? There's even a space on the back of the bulletin for some sermon notes. You might want to write that question down there to think about it this week. But the second thing I want to challenge you with is this. Think of one person in your life with whom the Spirit is calling you to love with greater humility? What might it look like for you to wash the feet of that person? Not literally, but what might it look like for you to serve them in the way that Jesus has served you? How can I grow in humility What barriers are preventing me from growing in humility? And who is in my life that is already there? I don't have to go seek them or find, like, they're already, I already know who they are, that, that I can love with greater humility. And what might it look like for you to wash their feet in some way, to serve them in the way of Jesus, modeling what Christ has done for you as you live in relationship with them? Let's pray together. Father, it's, it's really astounding to consider the fact that in the kingdom that you have come to establish on earth, that second place, this place of humility is the greatest position. That humbling ourselves is the way, becoming a servant is the way, walking in humility is the way to be great in your eyes. As if greatness is the thing that we're even trying to achieve, it's not, but we understand that this is what it means to live as your people. And we also understand, God, that this is really, really, really hard in a world that is always pushing us to grow and expand and pursue and acquire and do all the things that we do in this life to get better and improve. And all those things can be good and sometimes necessary, but may we never lose sight of this ultimate call that you have placed on our lives, that you have have said, that Micah has said, that you require of us to walk in humility, to walk in the way of Jesus, to walk as a servant and as a slave of all. We are thankful, Father, that you did not only 
talk about this, but Jesus, that you came to live it out in front of us so that we have before our eyes a model and an example of what it looks like. May you give us courage to live out in this way in the lives of people that we have relationships with. Father, may you bring to mind as we think about this question, how can I grow in humility? May you bring to mind some barriers that we know are preventing us from growing in that way. And then may you give us a person, someone in our life to to live into this practice with, washing their feet, loving them and serving them, living out the life that you called us to live as we walk with you. We thank you, Father, for Jesus Christ and for his life and for his death, the ultimate act of humility, that he humbled himself and became obedient to death on the cross. And the good news that that is for us and for the world that you've created. We pray in his name. Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? We're going to sing one more song. I invite you to uh, find somebody around you if you need to pray. I'll be up front as well. I want to invite you to stay afterwards, join one of our classes, be a part of the potluck that's happening today. However you need to respond to God, let's do that while we sing this song together.